Let's start your holiday shopping off the right way. Order yourself a copy today of my new book, Christmas Past, The Fascinating Stories Behind Our Favorite Holidays Traditions. It'll keep you feeling festive all season long. Available in hardcover and ebook from Lions Press, and as an audiobook from recorded books narrated by yours truly. Available at all your favorite online booksellers, and remember, it makes a great gift. A few weeks ago, unless you live in Arizona or Hawaii, you set your clocks back. I always seem to forget why we do that, but if nothing else, it feels like a way of crossing a threshold into a coming season where the days are shorter and colder and where the atmosphere and spirit are merrier and brighter. I enjoy that feeling so much that this past weekend I set my clocks back again. But this time not by one hour, but by, oh, 170-odd years. To a time when gentlemen wore top hats and waistcoats and soot-covered chimney sweeps bustled through the streets and on the rooftops. Yes, I've returned once again to a beloved Bay Area tradition, the Great Dickens Christmas Fair. And, more impressively, it has returned to us. This immersive experience that brings visitors back to Christmas Eve in Victorian London started in 1970 and ran continuously until the early 90s, where it went dormant for some years in search of a suitable home. And by suitable, I mean a home that can accommodate a three-acre floor plan with multiple theaters and dance floors, indoor parades, amusements and games, shopping, classic English Christmas foods, and recreations of city streets, quaint shops, seedy docks, lavish tea rooms, pubs, and dining halls. That suitable home is a place called the Cow Palace in Daly City on the southern border of San Francisco. And the Great Dickens Christmas Fair, or simply the Dickens Fair as a lot of people call it, began a new run at the Cow Palace in 2000. Where it has been now consistently, except for a a small hiatus due to the plague. That's Kevin Patterson. He's the co-producer of the Great Dickens Christmas Fair, and it was his parents who founded it back in 1970. And yes, just like everything else in 2020, the Dickens Fair went dark due to the pandemic. And last year, 2021, Patterson and company offered a modified version. Well, actually, it wasn't even really a fair so much as it was an opportunity for people to drive around in the uh, vicinity of the fair and get some uh, uh, of the delightful foods that were there and see some vignettes of entertainment and maybe ride uh, in a a carriage. But that was um, uh, all socially distanced. And much of that was made possible with government assistance through the Coronavirus Aid, Relief and Economic Security, or CARES Act. Your tax dollars helping to keep the Christmas spirit alive. So after two years away, 2022 is a return to the full production and then some including an indoor skating rink and a Christmas tree lot. So that tradition and that return to gathering together as artists, as performers, and as members of community is so meaningful to us to then be able to return to it and not just think longingly of it as we had to do during our uh, unfortunate uh, forced hiatus. Well, having cozied myself into the fair, sampled some savory pies and hot toddies and these amazing cinnamon-frosted almonds, caught a pantomime performance at the Victoria and Albert Music Hall, and witnessed some live Irish music and dancing at Fezziwigs, it was time to do what I'd come to do, explore Christmas past in the best possible way by talking directly to a figure from it. Here, I am am Catherine Hogarth Dickens. Sometimes she also goes by Therese Porter, 
and sometimes she's also the co-director of entertainment at the Dickens Fair. I asked her, given that much of the American Christmas is based on many Victorian customs, are there any that America didn't adopt? There are many ancient traditions that were revived, um, such as the Boar's Head Parade. Um, and you will see it later today, where, where we carry a, boar's, a real boar's head, and cooked, I believe, and all sorts of savories, and we sing a carol and we process it through the streets, and that goes back to medieval times. Um, one of the thing, wonderful things about Victorian Christmases is telling ghost stories and, and doing divination, which is not something I think the Americans did very much. But um, there is this wonderful sense of the, the spirits draw closer at Christmas time, and so we, we, we tell the stories to, to keep them happy, and we, we peer into the future with all sorts of things like dropping molten lead into water or, or candle wax into water, um, seeing the patterns in the fire and, and those sorts of things. And then there are things like Snapdragon, where you set a, a shallow pan of brandy on fire with little currants and, and sultanas in it, and you try to pluck them out without getting your fingers burned, which... Um, most of the time. Um, very, very jolly. And of course, lots of setting things on fire, setting the pudding on fire and, and throwing chestnuts on the fire and that sort of thing. You'd think that we Americans would love setting things on fire. Now, did you catch that little phrase Mrs. Dickens used at the start? There are many ancient traditions that were revived. Uh, revived? Well, why did they need to be revived? Christmas was celebrated vividly from at least medieval times, up until, oh, those nasty Puritans, Oliver Cromwell. He banished Christmas, can you imagine? And so Christmas took quite a body blow, and it took, it took a while for Christmas to find its way, but the English have always loved Christmas, and so I think when, between Prince Albert and my husband, they, they, Christmas was ready to come roaring back. And the Victorian-era revival happened at a time when new advances were changing what Christmas was or could be. Widespread rail travel transformed Christmas into a time for homecomings and where goods could be shipped to more places. Postal reform and rising literacy rates meant that people could write and send those new things called Christmas cards, which were themselves thanks in part to advances in printing technology. A rising middle class meant that more people could experience comfort and joy. All of it serving to help us do that most basic and yet crucial part of Christmas, being together. And all of that captured and composed and made famous by a certain Mr. Dickens. One of the things, and, and Mr. Dickens celebrates this in Christmas Carol, is it's about gathering with the people that you love. It's, it's about enjoying good food and drink. It's enjoying um, games and, and pastimes. And well, there are some presents, but it's more about the traditions and the congeniality and conviviality and the being together. Um, one of the things that English readers have always cherished about A Christmas Carol is the Cratchit family. They are poor, but they, they've, they've been able to, to get enough money for a goose and for the probably the first time in a, in, in a year they have enough to eat. And they, but they, they love each other and they enjoy each other's company and they play games and they, they drink and they sing. And, and I think that that's really the way to cherish the season. One of the great tragedies of Mr. Scrooge was not that he was a miser. The miserliness 
blindness was a symptom rather than the actual malady. And what the ghosts told him by reminding him of his own past and showing his present is how cut off from humanity he was. And so when he rejoined humanity, when he was redeemed, he he went out to do good. He went, went out to, to rejoin the human race and to, to use his resources for kindness. And it wasn't that he was suddenly giving people presents. It was more that he became part of their lives. Well, what better way to get that sense of family bonding and Christmas spirit than to drop in on the Cratchits on Christmas Day in London? Most of us know the story of A Christmas Carol mainly through the many, many, many movie and television adaptations. But to quote Mr. Dickens himself, ain't nothing like the real thing. Okay, I made that up. He didn't really say that. But this episode arrives on Thanksgiving Day, and it's a gathering of the Christmas past family. So pull up a chair and pour yourself a festive libation, and I'll read you the very scene where Scrooge looks in on the Cratchits and their family celebration. It was a remarkable quality of the ghost, which Scrooge had observed at the baker's, that notwithstanding his gigantic size, he could accommodate himself to any place with ease, and that he stood beneath a low roof quite as gracefully and like a supernatural creature as it was possible he could have done in any lofty hall. And perhaps it was the pleasure the good spirit had in showing off this power of his, or else it was his kind, generous, hearty nature, and his sympathy with all poor men, that led him straight to Scrooge's clerks. For there he went, and took Scrooge with him, holding to his robe. And on the threshold of the door the spirit smiled and stopped to bless Bob Cratchit's dwelling with the sprinkling of his torch. Think of that. Bob had but fifteen bob a week to himself. He pocketed on Saturdays but fifteen copies of his Christian name, and yet the ghost of Christmas present blessed his four-room house. Then up rose Mrs. Cratchit, Cratchit's wife, dressed out but poorly in a twice-turned gown, but brave with ribbons which were cheap and make a goodly show for sixpence. And she laid the cloth, assisted by Belinda Cratchit, second of their daughters, also brave in ribbons, while Master Peter Cratchit plunged a fork into the saucepan of potatoes, getting the corners of his monstrous shirt collar, Bob's private property conferred upon his son and heir in honor of the day, into his mouth, rejoiced to find himself so gallantly attired, and yearned to show his linen in the fashionable parks. And now, two smaller Cratchits, boy and girl, came tearing in, screaming that outside the baker's they had smelt the goose and known it for their own. And basking in luxurious thoughts of sage and onion, these young Cratchits danced about the table and exalted Master Peter Cratchit to the skies, while he, not proud although his collars nearly choked him, blew the fire, until the slow potatoes bubbling up knocked loudly at the saucepan lid to be let out and peeled. What has ever got your precious father, then? said Mrs. Cratchit. And your brother, Tiny Tim. And Martha, weren't his late last Christmas day by half an hour. Here's Martha, mother, said a girl, appearing as she spoke. Here's Martha, mother, cried the two young Cratchits. Hurrah! There's such a goose, Martha! Why, bless your heart alive, my dear, how late you are, said Mrs. Cratchit, kissing her a dozen times and taking off her shawl and bonnet for her with officious zeal. We'd a deal of work to finish up last night, replied the girl, and had to clear away this morning, mother. Well, never mind so long as you are here, said Mrs. Cratchit. Sit ye down before the fire, my dear, and have a warm, Lord bless ye. No, no, there's father coming, cried the two young Cratchits, who were everywhere at once. Hide, Martha, hide. 
So Martha hid herself, and in came little Bob the father with at least three feet of comforter exclusive of the fringe hanging down before him, and his threadbare clothes darned up and brushed to look seasonable, and Tiny Tim upon his shoulder. Alas, for Tiny Tim he bore a little crutch and had his limbs supported by an iron frame. Why, where's our Martha? cried Bob Cratchit, looking around. Not coming, said Mrs. Cratchit. Not coming, said Bob, with a sudden declension in his high spirits, for it had been Tim's blood horse all the way from church and had come home rampant. Not coming upon Christmas Day. Martha didn't like seeing him disappointed, if it were only in joke, so she came out prematurely from behind the closet door and ran into his arms while the two young Cratchits hustled Tiny Tim and bore him off into the wash house that he might hear the pudding singing in the copper. And how did little Tim behave, asked Mrs. Cratchit, when she had rallied Bob on his credulity, and Bob had hugged his daughter to his heart's content? As good as gold, said Bob, and better. Somehow he gets thoughtful sitting by himself so much, and thinks the strangest things you ever heard. He told me, coming home, that he hoped that people saw him in church because he was a cripple, and that it might be pleasant to them to remember upon Christmas Day who made lame beggars walk and blind men see. Bob's voice was tremulous when he told them this, and trembled more when he said that Tiny Tim was growing strong and hearty. His active crutch was heard upon the floor, and back came Tiny Tim before another word was spoken, escorted by his brother and sister to his stool before the fire, and while Bob, turning up his cuffs as if, poor fellow, they were capable of being made more shabby, compounded some hot mixture in a jug with gin and lemons, and stirred it round and round and put it on the hob to simmer. Master Peter and the two ubiquitous young Cratchits went to fetch the goose, with which they soon returned in high procession. Such a bustle ensued that you might have thought a goose the rarest of all birds, a feathered phenomenon to which a black swan was a matter of course, and in truth it was something very like it in the house. Mrs. Cratchit made the gravy, ready beforehand in a little saucepan, hissing hot. Master Peter mashed the potatoes with incredible vigor, Miss Belinda sweetened up the applesauce, Martha dusted the hot plates, Bob took Tiny Tim beside him in a tiny corner at the table, the two young Cratchits set chairs for everybody, not forgetting themselves, and mounting guard upon their posts, crammed spoons into their mouth, lest they should shriek for goose before their turn came to be helped. At last the dishes were set on, and grace was said. It was succeeded by a breathless pause as Mrs. Cratchit, looking slowly all along the carving table, prepared to plunge it into the breast. But when she did, and when the long-expected gush of stuffing issued forth, one murmur of delight arose all around the board, and even Tiny Tim, excited by the two young Cratchits, beat on the table with the handle of his knife and feebly cried, Hurrah! There never was such a goose. Bob said he didn't believe there ever was such a goose cooked. Its tenderness and flavor, size and cheapness were the themes of universal admiration. Eked out by applesauce and mashed potatoes, it was a sufficient dinner for the whole family. Indeed, as Mrs. Cratchit said with great delight, surveying one small atom of a bone upon the dish, they hadn't ate it all at last. Yet everyone had had enough, and the youngest Cratchits in particular were steeped in sage and onion to the eyebrows. But now, the plates being changed by Miss Belinda, Mrs. Cratchit left the room, alone, too nervous to bear witness to take the pudding up and bring it in. 
Suppose it should not be done enough. Suppose it should break in turning out. Suppose somebody should have got over the wall of the backyard and stolen it while they were merry with the goose. A supposition at which the two young Cratchits became livid. All sorts of horrors were supposed. Hello, a great deal of steam. The pudding was out of the copper. A smell like a washing day. That was the cloth. A smell like an eating house and a pastry cook's next door to each other with the laundress next door to that. That was the pudding. In half a minute, Mrs. Cratchit entered, flushed but smiling proudly, with the pudding, like a speckled cannonball, so hard and firm, blazing in half of half a quartern of ignited brandy and bedight with Christmas holly stuck into the top. Oh, a wonderful pudding. Bob Cratchit said, and calmly too, that he regarded it as the greatest success achieved by Mrs. Cratchit since their marriage. Mrs. Cratchit said that now the weight was off her mind, she would confess that she had her doubts about the quantity of flour. Everybody had something to say about it, but nobody said or thought that it was at all a small pudding for a large family. It would have been flat heresy to do so. Any Cratchit would have blushed to hint at such a thing. At last, the dinner was all done. The cloth was cleared, the hearth swept, and the fire made up. The compound in the jug being tasted and considered perfect, apples and oranges were put upon the table and a shovelful of chestnuts on the fire. Then all the Cratchit family drew round the hearth in what Bob Cratchit called a circle, meaning half of one, and at Bob Cratchit's elbow stood the family display of glass. Two tumblers and a custard cup without a handle. These held the hot stuff from the jug, however, as well as golden goblets would have done and Bob served it out with beaming looks while the chestnuts on the fire sputtered and cracked noisily. Then Bob proposed, A Merry Christmas to us all, my dears. God bless us. Which all the family re-echoed. God bless us every one, said Tiny Tim, the last of all. He sat very close to his father's side upon the little stool. Bob held his withered little hand in his, as if he loved the child and wished to keep him by his side and dreaded, that he might be taken from him. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. I hope you spent it with people you love and that you ate food that you love and that you had a wonderful time, that everyone is happy and healthy and feeling the Christmas spirit, and I hope that you have that blissfully bloppy feeling from eating a little too much pumpkin pie and then relaxing on the couch with even more pumpkin pie. And I hope you know that this is the beginning of the seventh season of Christmas Past. Going forward, you can join me on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday of every week for an all-new backstory to one of your favorite Christmas traditions and one of your Christmas memories. Speaking of which, now is a great time to send one, and all you have to do is record a short voice memo into your phone and send it to christmaspastpodcast at gmail.com. Keep it reasonably short, clean, and family-friendly, and be sure to say your name and where you're from. And then, of course, join me on Sunday, December 25th for our 7th annual Christmas Day in Review. Let's make the 2022 season of Christmas Past the best one yet, and let's do it together. I'll see you again soon, and until then, let me remind you that Christmas Past is produced in wonderful Willow Glen, California, by yours truly, Brian Earle. Special thanks to Therese Porter, Kevin Patterson, Denise Lamont, and everyone at the Great Dickens Christmas Fair. Let's stay connected all throughout the season. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and please join our private Christmas Past Facebook group if you haven't yet. 
And hey, if you're really feeling the Christmas spirit, why not help more people discover the show? It's as simple as telling a friend about it or leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. If you do leave a review, I'll send you a Christmas Past sticker and a handwritten Christmas card is my way of saying thanks. Reach out for details. And until we meet again, may your days be merry and bright.